Chapter Twenty Two of Cowboy Life on the Sidetrack. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cowboy Life on the Sidetrack by Frank Benton. Chapter Twenty Two. Sarer. The rainy season had now set in in good earnest all through Nebraska, and while the natives have typhoid fever and malaria to a more or less extent, yet most of them live through it. But people from the dry mountain regions that have been used to pure air and water all their lives fare worse from these fevers ten times over than the natives, and Dilbury Ike fell a victim right in the start. One evening, soon after we left Grand Island, I noticed his face was flushed very red, and he complained of a dull headache. But as he had the headache a good deal ever since the railroad police had scalped him at Cheyenne in mistake for a striker, I didn't think so much of his headache. But when I come to look at his tongue and feel his pulse, I found every indication of high fever. In a few hours he was out of his mind and talked of shady mountain sides, babbling brooks, and clear mountain springs of water. And he talked of his horses and cattle, his cow ranch and alfalfa meadows, but most of all he talked of Sarah. Now, Dilbury had only one romance in his life that we knew of, and that happened in this way. Several decades previous to our story, the few families living in the vicinity of Dilbury's ranch in Utah had got together and built an adobe schoolhouse, and voting a special tax on the piece of railroad track that run through their part of the country, had raised enough money to pay for the schoolhouse and hire a schoolteacher. At first, each of the three married women in the neighborhood wanted to teach the school. Then each of them offered to take turns about teaching it so they could divide the money. But their husbands, who was the directors, wanted a school marm, so as to have a little young female blood diffused through the atmosphere in that part of the country. And after advertising for a school teacher the New England brand preferred, got hundreds of answers very shortly. So putting their heads together they selected one that had a kind of crabapple perfume attached to the application, and was worded in such a way as to give the reader a notion of pleading blue eyes, with a wealth of golden-brown hair, and heaving bosom. Not too young to teach school, nor too old to be romantic and sympathetic, and closed a deal with her to come west and teach their school. She had signed her name Sarah Jessica Virginia Smith, but was always known as Miss Sarah. When she was about to arrive at the railroad station thirty miles away, all the married men wanted to go and meet her. All of them had particular business in at the station that day, but none of their wives would stand for it. They say that Dilbury Ike was a bachelor, and the proper one to get her. Now Dilbury Ike was a long, gangling, bashful, backward plainsman, never had a sweetheart, and was considered perfectly harmless around women by everyone who knew him. The old married men finally agreed to let Dilbury meet the schoolmarm, but not till each had went through a stormy scene with his wife, in which that good woman had threatened to tear the blanket right in two in the middle with such forcible language that you could almost hear it ripping. Dilbury had got shaved, had his hair cut, put on his best black suit he had bought from a sheeny, the pants being a trifle of six or eight inches too short for him at the top and bottom both, his coat rather large in the waist, but short at the wrists, like the pants, and hitching his mules to his spring wagon, he started bright and early to the station of Kelton, Utah. He arrived about noon, him and his mules, white with alkali dust, and finding that the train was twenty-three hours late, stayed at the section house till next day, there being no hotel in Kelton. When the train came along next day about noon, a large portly lady of uncertain age, with her frizzed-up hair turning gray, 
her hands full of wraps, lunch baskets, sofa pillows, telescope grips, umbrellas, hand boxes, and bird cages, climbed off the train, and the baggage man put off a large horsehide trunk, from which most of the hair had been worn off, or perhaps scalped off in the troublous times when Washington was crossing the Delaware. When she got this old bald-headed-looking trunk and a couple of shoe-boxes with rope handles that were probably full of century magazines, piled up with her other baggage, the newsboy said it looked like an Irish eviction. When Dilbury saw this old man-hunter and all her luggage, his heart failed him, and he went to the saloon three times to lick her up before he got sand enough to talk to her. Of course, Dilbury expected to marry her no matter what she was like, as the whole neighborhood where he lived had planned it ever since the school-marm was talked of, and he couldn't expect to disappoint the neighbors and still continue to live there. Still, she wasn't exactly what he had figured in his mind after reading a great many novels about the rosy-cheeked, small-waisted, dainty feet, lily-white hands, wondrous brown hair, blue-eyed New England darlings, with pretty sailor hats and tailor-made suits, who come west to teach our schools and, incidentally, marry the most expert roping, best bronco-busting chief cowpuncher. And now here was this dropsical-looking old girl, with fat, pudgy-looking hands and feet like a couple of poison pups, with all this colonial luggage. However, Dilbury was obliged to take charge of her and her traps, as he called them, and when he was finally ready to start, had got everything on the spring wagon, even to the bird cages, and after getting a final drink with the boys and filling a bottle to take along, he loaded the old girl in and whipping up his mules disappeared in a cloud of alkali dust. Dilbury sat on his end of the seat, frightened out of his wits, and Sarah Jessica Virginia Smith sat on the other end, but of course sat on all the vacant seat left by Dilbury because she couldn't help it. She was built that way, and was even more afraid of Dilbury than he was of her. Although she had always been hunting a man, yet she was in a wild country and a stranger, not a house in sight and night coming on, with a very savage-looking man who was undoubtedly very drunk, and acting very strangely, to say the least. As time went on, Dilbury got drier and drier, and studied a good deal how to get a drink out of his bottle without letting Sarah see him. Finally he concluded he could make some excuse that the load was slipping. He might get around back of the wagon to fix it, and under cover of the darkness quietly get a drink out of his bottle. So when they were crossing a canyon in an unusually lonely spot, he stopped the mules, and muttering something about the load, he started to get out. But Sarah thought her hour had come, and throwing her arms, which were like pillow bolsters, around Dilbury's neck, began to scream and piteously beg him not to do her any wrong. The more Dilbury Ike tried to explain, the more Sarah Jessica cried, screamed, and sobbed, till finally, with a despairing sigh like unto the collapse of a big balloon, she fainted clear away on his breast, pinning him over the back of the seat, his spinal column slowly but surely being sawed in two over the sharp edge. The horror of poor old Dilbury, when he realized that death from a broken back was only a question of her not coming out of the dead faint, which she seemed to have gotten an allopathic dose of, cannot be described. When some time had elapsed and she showed no signs of animation, he made a great struggle to get from under her. But it was a vain attempt. He was nailed down as completely as a piece of canvas under a paving block. And when it came over him that he was doomed to this ignominious death, when he fully realized what people would think about him when they found him in this compromising position, 
and the cowboys would facetiously all agree that he looked like a Texas dogie steer hanging dead on a wire fence after a Wyoming blizzard. When he felt that peculiar loud buzzing in his ears that is a premonition of death, he made one final desperate struggle, and spitting out a lot of gray hair, hairpins, and pieces of switch which had accumulated in his mouth, he screamed with all the strength of his lungs in one long despairing cry the one word, Sarah! Now in Dilbury Ike's delirium and raging fever on the stock train, he kept continually giving tongue in a long, blood-curdling, soul-freezing, despairing cry to that one word, Sarah! Night and day we had to listen to that heartbroken cry. Finally, when the fever was at its highest stage, I consulted the conductor of our special about getting a doctor, and he advised me to go back to the last town we had passed through where there was a good physician and get him. He said that we would have plenty of time as there was a lonely sidetrack just ahead of the train. So walking back about ten miles to this town, I secured the services of a doctor, and getting a livery rig, we soon caught up with the special. When the doctor had examined Dilbury's tongue and pulse and had put his ears to Dilbury's heart while he was giving one of his despairing cries for, Sarah, he wrote a prescription in some kind of foreign language which he interpreted to us, as he said he had written it down as a mere form to show that he could write in a foreign language. He said our friend was very sick, and the one thing that would save his life was to get Sarah for him. Now, of course, that was an impossibility. But he said all we needed was an imitation Sarah, something that looked like her and was about her size and form. So after explaining to him what Sarah was like, he drove back to town, and when he caught up to us again, brought into the car a wonderful dummy made out of a large sack of bran, with a head tied on it composed mainly of a sack of hair, such as plasterers use to mix mortar with. He had a large, but not too large, Mother Hubbard dress on this wonderful dummy, and the whole well perfumed with Florida water. When we laid this imitation Sarah in the emaciated arms of poor old Dilbury, his eyes grew moist for a moment, and straining it to his breast he gave a contented sigh or two, whispered, Sarah, Sarah, and dropped off into a healthy slumber, and the doctor said he would live. Eats up, Sarah. Dilbury slept for a long time, and awoke somewhat refreshed, but somewhat under the influence of his animal scalp, and no one being in the car, the spirit of the goat probably overtook him as he devoured the head of the dummy Sarah, which will be remembered consisted of plastering hair. Then the spirit of the sheep and the pig coming over him, he devoured the sack of bran, and laying down in front of the stove like a Newfoundland dog, he went to sleep. Thus I found him on my return to the car. But alas, his stomach was too weak to digest all the stuff he had consumed, and in a few hours he was in a raging fever and calling for Sarah again. But of course he had devoured Sarah, and we had nothing to fix up in the place of the dummy. And while it was heart-rending to hear his sobbing cry for Sarah growing weaker and weaker as the night wore on, yet we could only listen and hope. About four o'clock in the morning his cries stopped, and he seemed to be sleeping for a few minutes. And then he opened his eyes and took my hands, and in a weak but rational voice told me the story of his boyhood in the following words. He said he was born in the mountains in Virginia. He was the only child, so far as he knew, of a moonshiner's daughter. His mother was not an unhappy woman, he said, when she had plenty of snuff and moonshine whiskey. In fact, was quite gay at times. No one, not even his mother, knew exactly who his father was. 
Some people said it was a revenue officer, and some said it was the member of Congress from that district, but most people thought it was a livestock agent of one of the Western Railroads. However this may be, he thrived on corn-pone, dewberries, wild honey, and sow-bosom, and as soon as he got old enough helped his mother cut wood and haul it to town in a two-wheeled hickory cart drawn by a steer. They lived with his grandfather, who was quite a prominent man in that part of Virginia, and who was finally killed by revenue officers. His mother was sent to the pen for selling moonshine whiskey, and he was taken charge of by a family who immigrated to Utah. He said the last time he saw his darling mother, twas at their old home in the mountains in Virginia. The steer was hitched to the cart one beautiful spring morning. The sun's rays was just kissing the mountain tops, when two revenue officers had appeared at their home, and after a lively scrap with his mother they had succeeded in arresting her. Not, though, till she had thoroughly furrowed their cheeks with her fingernails, and plenteously helped herself to sundry handfuls of their hair after which she had peacefully seated herself in the cart and was placidly chewing a snuff-stick in each corner of her mouth when the steer and cart disappeared around a bend in the mountain road and fate decreed he should never see her again the family that took charge of him were neighbor moonshiners and had a day or so after this took place traded off their virginia estate for a team of antique mules and a linchpin wagon and storing a goodly supply of moonshine whiskey applejack cornmeal and bacon in the wagon loaded the family consisting of nine children himself included in the wagon and emigrated for utah he said as long as he was with these people he was treated like one of the family but as they emigrated back to virginia the next year they left him in utah with a poor family and he was hungry many times and he was always telling the children he associated with how big the dewberries grew where he came from so the other children nicknamed him dewberry which was finally changed to dillberry and that name had stuck to him ever since. After finishing the story of his boyhood, Dilberry lay quiet for a short time, and then motioning me to bend down close to him, he whispered to me not to bury him in Nebraska, where, he said, the only way a man could hope to be resurrected was in the shape of a yellow ear of corn, to be fed to a yellow steer, followed by a yellow hog, and the hog meat eaten by a yellow-whiskered malarial populist, and so on. After I promised to see that he was buried on his ranch in Utah, he asked me to sing that old cowboy song, Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roams, a place where the rattlesnake plays. The Passing of Dilberry Ike T'was a dismal night on a way-car, the rain pattering on the roof o'erhead. The man who has told this story was alone with the silent dead. The voice that had been calling for Sarah was hushed and stilled at last. He had finished telling the story of his childhood's checkered past. No more would he ride the ranges, no more the maverick's brand, nor subdue the bucking bronco in that far western land, never again to meet the schoolmarms when they came travelin' west, under the guise of school-teaching, to get in a bachelor's nest. Dilberry folded his hands gently as he quietly went to sleep, in the death that knows no waking, for which no shipper could weep. While some of his life had been stormy, of hardships he'd had his chair, Pen cannot paint a cattleman's troubles, nor picture his heart-sick care. When he's got his cattle on a special, and getting a special run, death for him hasn't a single terror. He longs for it to come. And so with poor old Dilberry, when his weary eyes closed in death, blotted out his sorrows and troubles, all blown away with his last breath.
He had gone to meet his grandfather, and get some of his latest brew, for who shall say that old moonshiner had quit distilling some mountain dew? For all say the other world is better, we'll get what we like over there, while of our joys here we are stinted, in the hereafter we get double share. His eyes grew bright with a vision that he saw on the other side. He got a glimpse of a right good cow country just before he started to ride. And his eyes lit up with a gladness, his face o'erspread with hope, as without a trace of sadness, his spirit rode away in a lope. End of chapter 22 Recording by Philip Gould